Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 306. Man, we are moving on up there in the episode count. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today's episode is a really timely one for leaders looking to communicate powerfully in times of change. I'm sitting down with Christina Blacken to talk about narrative leadership and the importance of narrative leadership as we communicate, as we lead through uncertainty and change, and as we create more, not just compassionate and empathic, but inclusive and diverse workplaces by really challenging our own biases through the stories we consume and the stories that we share. So if you, especially if you're a manager, I think today's conversation will be immediately applicable uh, to how we're communicating with others. But keep in mind, anyone can change the world through the stories that you choose to share and how you choose to share them. I'm a bit of a storytelling geek, so I'm very excited to sit down with Christina Blacken. She's a public speaker, performer, the podcast host of Sway Them in Color, and she's the founder of thenewquo.com. The New Quo is a leadership development and communications consultancy where she's helped 1,500 leaders, companies, and entrepreneurs leverage the psychological power of story to transform behavior, build inclusive culture, and communicate new ideas with deeper connection and influence to achieve their goals. She provides training and consulting on the topics of imposter syndrome, inclusive leadership, brand story, culture change, and more. And in her early career, she worked for 10 years in four different industries using stories to drive change, including inspiring 300,000 teens to take action on social issues and closing 6.5 million in sales with the teams and with the teams at uh, and household brands that she's worked with. Now, she's here to share her experience as it relates to narrative leadership, telling us why it's so important, how to cultivate your storytelling skills, and why we should think of storytelling as a leadership skill that's absolutely imperative for all of us to develop, especially now during times of tumultuous change. Christina Blacken, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. Thank you for having me. So I have to say, I am a big storytelling geek myself. So when I ran across your work at The New Quo and specifically uh, the white paper that you have written all about changing the status quo through narrative intelligence, I knew I had to have you on the podcast to discuss what that really means. But before we dive into narrative intelligence, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you find yourself starting the new quo and and what led you to really traversing down this path of of narrative leadership? 
there are probably three key events in my life that I can connect to building the new quo. And the first was, I remember one of the first books I read as a kid was called Invisible Man. And it took me a long time to realize that the book wasn't literally about a person who's invisible. I was like, (laughs) this guy is physically invisible. It's crazy. I didn't know it was an analogy for what it was like to be a Black person at a very specific time in the United States and feeling like no one sees you and no one cares about you. Mm. And that story really stuck with me because it was fictional, but it weaved this really interesting narrative that was reflective of the genuine times and experiences that my family has had, my ancestors have had, my grandmother, my mom, my cousins, my uncles. And so that really sat with me while I was growing up in Utah because I could see very clearly how fictional and non-fictional stories affected people's biases and affected their beliefs and behaviors. And U- I was- Utah being one of the states known for its diversity. Yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> state, right. You know, it's probably the, the widest state in the United States, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I think that in and of itself, and also just being a lover of story and a writer and a creator as a kid, made me fascinated with how stories really do shape people's thinking And it's one of the quickest transports of values and beliefs. People adopt so many values and beliefs from stories that they hear from their families, from media, entertainment. So that kind of put me on the path of I'm I'm obsessed with story, not only as this incredible emotional experience that's entertaining and engaging, but also as a sort of educational tool. And so when I went to college, I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to go into a major that can allow me to understand how to have like more societal level impact. And when I left college, I went into the legal field because I thought I would change the world one legal brief at a time and realized that that wasn't the path for me. And so I got into a couple of key positions where I was using storytelling to build these massive campaigns and essentially inspiring people to change their behavior, which was so fascinating for me. I was like, wait, you can literally put a few words together and you can get someone to change what they do and change what they think at scale. Um, and so that was sort of the bug for me to build the new quo, which now is a leadership and inclusion consultancy. And I teach narrative intelligence, which is this idea that there's a psychological and science power behind story. And if you understand it as an individual, you can not only become more conscious and intentional with your own thinking and behavior, but you can be more inclusive and connected at a deeper level with people not like yourself. Mm-hmm. If you like story to change your own behavior and to connect with others. I find that so fascinating. I studied political science and cognitive science in my undergraduate days, so I've always been fascinated by that interplay between our own individual decision-making, which we think we have a lot more agency and autonomy (laughs) than we do, and our collective decision-making and storytelling and motivation theory behind it all. And, you know, it's an interesting reminder that we can use stories, sure, to inspire change, to inspire action, uh, to bring people together, and you know, storytelling, just like any tool, can be used for good and evil. Uh, and it can be used to drive a wedge between uh, different parts of America, which I think we see in our politics all the time. Uh, and so I think, you know, acknowledging the power of narrative intelligence is so key so that leaders and really everyday people can use it as a tool for uh, not just ethical leadership, but really authentic leadership. So, Let's dive a little bit deeper into what narrative intelligence means exactly and why does it matter? Why does it make such a a big difference? You bring up such a great point about collective storytelling and individual because there is so Mm -hmm. many things at play with narrative. But 
One of the key reasons why narrative intelligence is so important is because humans primarily communicate through story. So I think there's a statistic floating around right now that about 65% of all of your daily communication is story. So when you're talking to your parents and your friends and your colleagues, you are constantly exchanging small stories and narratives and snippets to do a number of things. Some of those things are just to connect. Some of it, it is to persuade or to influence someone else's thinking. Sometimes it's to be seen or heard or to teach an idea. And so we do it naturally. I think most humans start telling stories at the age of like three, even ridiculous and doesn't make sense stories, right? They're like, right. The down and the alien touched this red ball. And you're like, what are you talking about? But once upon a time, it's like such a big part of our childhood, you know? It really is. Yeah. And I think that aspect of the human experience, that's what makes us so distinctly unique compared to other species on this planet is we have an ability to construct a narrative around an idea to attach meaning to the events and changing around us. So it's a narrative and that can be used for good or bad. And the actual field of narrative intelligence actually first popped up around the 1950s and 60s because researchers were trying to figure out how do we get artificial intelligence or robot like machines to think and act like humans. Mm-hmm. And nothing were- creepy about that. <laughs> at all, right? They're right. like, oh, we're human like we're like, I don't know. But essentially <laughs> we're focused on how can we get them to have abstract approaches to narrative because that's the one thing that AI and um, machines don't do well. And that's right. the thing human beings still can do. And so they were studying that and looking at how narrative impacts a number of things across a number of fields. And so I think it's still a burgeoning field in the sense of applying this in, you know, a personal development or communication sense. And I actually discovered their term from a friend who is a developer and works in the tech world. And when I was explaining the work that I do, he was like, you know, that's narrative intelligence work, right? I was like, what is that? Like, what is this? And it's, I think it's similar to emotional intelligence when that term was first kind of into people's lexicon and people didn't understand what that was. But it's it's essentially, yeah, this idea of an inherent ability that you can improve over time. And I think it has two key components, which is your internal narratives that you hold, which are about your own beliefs, behaviors, and values. And then how you specifically use external narratives to move or to shape other people. And the powerful thing about that is anyone of any background, if they are an excellent storyteller, can have immense persuasion and impact. And people who are not great people, who are great storytellers, or who understand the psychology of story, can use that for bad. I mean, a great example of this from the past is the movie Birth of a Nation, which was one of the first premier feature films in the United States that went into theaters. And it was solely about this idea that Black men are these insatiable sexual creatures who are attacking white women. And it was a fictionalized story, but because it was so persuasive and visceral and hateful, it actually brought a surge in hate crimes and joining of the Ku Klux Klan. And that was solely just through one singular fictional narrative. And there's plenty of other examples that are similar. So I think we've seen time and again that actually some of our deepest biases and and beliefs and behaviors have been embedded into our thinking through narrative that's been passed on from generation to generation. And I think if everyone can improve their narrative intelligence, they can become more conscious and intentional with how they think and also can feel more power to be able to persuade people to buy into new ideas, to change the status quo for the better if we can teach people how to use these for good instead of for bad. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I was watching Ava DeBrunet's um, 13th documentary, which spoke to the power 
of Birth of a Nation in particular, when she sort of illustrated a fact about that movie I had never heard before, which is that was the first time the burning of a cross by the KKK was depicted because it had, you know, exciting visual narrative storytelling as a tool. And prior to that, apparently the KKK didn't burn crosses. So it's just such a reminder that life mimics art just as much as art mimics life. And that if you are an artist crafting stories you can inspire others to take action, uh, again, for good or for evil, and lots of things in between. So I studied public narrative back in the day with Marshall Gans at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and he really focuses on movement-building narrative work that came out of the uh, let's say, farm workers union strike or civil rights, uh, you know, for racial justice. And over time, how public narrative, like the stories that we tell not only about ourselves, but about our communities and about society writ large, kind of work together. And I know your white paper really speaks to those different elements of story. How can you begin to practice constructing story along those lines? How can you begin to really understand and unpack how our individual stories are always playing out on the backdrop or with a backdrop of a public story and a public narrative as well? Yes. And I love his work. I think he's so, that's so awesome. You got to study that because I think he's such a groundbreaking teacher and researcher in this field and actually was really influential in how organizing has happened in certain democratic Mm-hmm. Uh, elections in the last like 10, 15 years. But some of the key things that I teach, what I have a, a methodology that I've created called the status quo shifting message, because I actually think there are key types of messages that move people along the path of change. Yep. Um, there's a change model called the chance theoretical model of change. And it's kind of like the five steps that kind of occur in multi- emotionally and mentally for people when they're confronted with having to change. Mm-hmm. And you have certain key messages it can move one person from one step to the next so usually in change people are not even aware that they need to change and so the first key messages people need to hear to move them from a place of apathy and denial to being curious or desiring change is to hear sort of a catalyst message and i think that essentially brings the truth it's almost like a mirror where people are hearing the truth for the first time so the example that you gave before the 13th that documentary is an incredible catalyst message. It kind of unearths what's in front of everyone that no one can see. And those messages are some of the key inflection points that were used in the civil rights movement to get people to see the reality of what's happening. And we've been seeing that play out in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement and the conversations that have been happening around, this has always existed, but people are becoming awakened to it. So then once people are aware and they're moving from that denial and sort of apathy into desiring change, then they need to feel personal commitment and empowered to make that change, to actually feel like I can individually do something. And I think that's when you have the champion message, which is sort of helping people to see that they do have an impact, that they do have a voice, that they do matter. I think a primary example of that is Stacey Abrams and all of the Black women who are organizers in this quintessential um, Senate race. They essentially were talking a lot about that, how Every single individual, every singular vote does make a difference. People were convinced of that. It came out in droves and it actually had a specific tangible impact. And then when you move people away from, they feel committed to making the change, but they're not sure exactly how. The next message that people really need to hear is sort of that vision message. So it's how do we do this? 
how do we get people to see what the plan is and and really laying it out and i think there's so many examples of that that we've seen from certain leaders and politicians you know i think aoc is a great example of that and so i'm talking about this in like a kind of higher level like politically but there's so many ways that people can do that within organizations within their companies within their communities and a lot of the time it's happening through just the media that people consume, you know, the movies they watch, the books they read, the podcasts they listen to. And I think individuals, what they can do on just a one-on-one level is to first self-reflect. So getting very on what are the narratives that I have around power and success and leadership and, you know, race, class, gender, sexuality, everyone has very dominant specific beliefs they hold. And all the time that's attached to certain stereotyped narratives. I mean, there's lots of tropes that we picked up over time about how the world works. And I think when people are able to self-reflect, they can break down where they actually are in terms of their own narrative intelligence. And also, what are some of the beliefs and behaviors that they want to let go of? What are the stories that are empowering? And then the next step from there is to then improve their cultural competency. So consuming diverse narratives makes you a better storyteller. If you have examples and experiences and metaphors and analogies and insights from cultures and experiences that are different from your own but still have universal relatability you just can be much more nuanced much more divergent in your thinking much more creative with how you're Mm -hmm. constructing narrative and i think people don't realize how homogenous the narratives are consuming so those two key steps i think allow people to become more conscious of this change process yeah messages that essentially move people along that change it's such a good case for consuming culture (laughs) it's like it's like listening to different kinds of music will make you smarter will help you make more neural connections you know consuming even just pop culture phenomenons and more plays and books and classics it's just such an interesting reminder of like the arts it's a good case for the uh for the, what's it called? Um, liberal arts education. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I think about yeah. growing up, like I say this all the time, that for me to be considered literate, I had to read and consume people who did not look like me at all. Right. And that was to be considered literate. So if I wanted to learn or read anything about people who had my same experiences, who looked like me, I had to go out of my way to do that. Right. And I think it contributed to my education to be able to um, be really deep in the know of so many different cultures and experiences. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me to navigate various spaces with ease because I had information and knowledge that was outside of just my comfort zone. Right. And it, it it's like enabling you to code switch essentially, which yes. I think, you know, stems from minority communities, if we want to call it that, but like communities who grew up speaking a different language or a different dialect in the household than, how you might speak in a boardroom in corporate America, but that all of us, uh, including white people, can and should really develop those skills as well because it makes us better communicators and better storytellers if we understand our audience and shift depending on our goals. Um, Absolutely. And you know, it's when you bring up code switching. I remember distinctly making a choice. when. So I don't work in corporate America anymore since mm-hmm. I work at my own company. But when I was, I remember thinking, you know what? There's certain things I'm not going to code switch on because uh-huh. this is probably the only time you're going to be exposed to this. So I'm just going to do it. I would say certain words or certain slang or whatever else in certain meetings. And that was such an interesting experiment and actually uh-huh. great for me to understand that 
there's always going to be pros and cons to doing that. And I, right. I, I think there's a cost obviously. And there's many reasons why people code switch. Right. But I got to the point where I was like, I'm bringing my full self and y'all better just be with it because if <laughs> I'm going to be in this space, yeah. I'm going to do this work. And so that was fascinating too, right? Because there's a lot of assumptions, even narratives about professionalism and a oh, lot yeah. of full of deep biases. So I think that's a great point that you bring yeah. up. You remind me of Michelle Obama's quote about, I think she said this at the United State of Women's Summit in D.C. a couple years ago. She said, you know, so many of us women and women of color have made it to those tables of power, have made it to those boardrooms, and we're just so glad to be there. We're holding on to those boardroom tables for dear life instead of really shaking them up. And it sort of speaks to the, of course, power and privilege uh, involved in just getting there. But it can make us a little hesitant to experiment. So I think that's a good example of mindfully risk taking um, as a little experiment. That's interesting. Um, I want to hear more about the status quo shifting messages of change. Your sort of methodology. And first of all, are you working on a book about this yet? Because we like that white paper belongs in a book form. You know, I definitely want to write a book. Um, okay. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it's something that's on my, this is going to happen at some point. Oh yeah. I see it already. Cause it's like, it's such a rich white paper. I'll link to it in the show notes for folks who want to learn more of it. My God, I can't wait to consume it in book book form. Cause it definitely warrants further explanation, I think. But one of your messages that I was reading about uh, amongst the many concepts you put forth there was innovation moments, you know, identifying significant moments of change. And you remind me as I think so many women listening who are managers or leaders can relate to, to my position as CEO of a small but growing team last year when the bottom fell out of our business model here at Bossed Up and we had to change everything. And so when you talk about the champion message, the vision, like sharing that vision, in this instance, the catalyst was not something we brought to the conversation, but was the pandemic that came very much to us. Uh, You know, you have a choice as a leader of panicking and closing down and shutting in, which is a perfectly understandable human self-protection response versus I think the very difficult choice as leaders, especially during times of uncertainty, is we have to put forth something. We have to put forth some vision, some sense of self uh, agency and, and ability, even though we don't have all the answers, to say, here's what we can do. Here's how we're going to get out of this uh, and solicit sort of courageous conversation around navigating uncertainty. And I know one of the things I wanted to ask you about are sort of how that differs from fear-based narratives in business and why, you know, we have to shift away from fear-based business narratives, which are so common, to, to something more empowering that inspires action in the face of crisis. Like, how have you been counseling other leaders during this weird past time, this pandemic nightmare uh, that we've all been dealing with as as leaders and storytellers? I love, love, love this question because it really gets to the heart of why narrative intelligence is so powerful. And, you know, it comes down to a couple of key things that I've noticed both in my work and also in the research around narrative. One, this sort of fear-based driven narrative that you bring up is such a quintessential part of why conventional businesses are falling apart. 
because most decision making is a fear based sort of structure and approach where everything is about the worst case scenario, the what ifs, and I have to do this or else. And when leaders are set sort of thinking, the messages that they bring to their teams are full of anxiety. They're full of zero sum games. They're full of very transactional um, messages that are not motivating and also can really demoralize a team, can really strip away, really helping that team reach its fullest potential and tapping into their fullest talents. And it ends up being this vicious cycle because people are anxious. They, they put these narratives out because they're like, we've got to get to this thing or else we have to do this thing or else. Mm. And they demotivate their team and cause worse outcomes. So I can give an example of that from my own personal experience. <laughs> yeah. So when I was working in uh, the corporate world, I was, I've worked in a number of industries from the law world to the nonprofit space to marketing and media and sales. And I was in a really large media company that had 14 online magazines. And I was running sort of these large national branded content campaigns where I was managing tons of money, tons of people at the same time. And they were going through a kind of tumultuous period where they were acquired by a larger company. And before the acquisition, the owner of the organization was really good at using the origin story of the company to help to center what would happen in uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So the origin was sort of, we've created this organization. We have a certain journalistic point of view that holds people in power accountable. That is our North Star. That is why we do everything that we do. And sometimes we've made missteps. Sometimes there have been mistakes, but that's always our purpose. And so mm-hmm. everything that we do from the decisions we make to the people we hire to our process has to benefit that sort of origin story. And people believed in it and their retention rates were insane. I mean, they had people there for 10 to 15 years, even through all the uncertainty. But as soon as the acquisition occurred and the leadership changed, the new narrative was, we have to make this much money by this quarter or else. That was oh, the God. only thing that shared. And it sounds super simplistic, but a significant amount of organizations when they are facing uncertainty, lean into that message. We have to get bigger by any means necessary or else. Mm-hmm. Not only did our sales go down, the productivity go down, we had immense amounts of attrition. People were quitting left and right. And it was ironic because we technically had more money. We had more potential yeah. because we had just been acquired. But because the narrative and the origin story, honestly, it, of the organization wasn't clear it wasn't being used as sort of this alignment tool to get people to see what is the bigger purpose of this besides make money. Mm-hmm. They, they really fell in terms of motivation and employee development. And so I think every organization that's going through uncertainty has to be very clear about their values. Mm-hmm. Money is a value. I cannot emphasize this enough to leaders. I'm like <laughs> it's a tool. It's like saying your 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 purpose is hammers. Right. Hammers nothing without context of what you're using them for are you making a birdhouse are you fixing a window are you putting a nail on a wall like what are you using the hammer for so money is a tool to do what you want to do or to have a specific sort of outcome but it is not a purpose in and of itself and i think most conventional organizations only talk about that they only Mm. talk about numbers and data and money with no other context no other motivational message so people don't care especially if they don't get the benefits of the organization growing right which is no. most employees, yeah. Employees are like, why should I care that I'm lying your pockets while I'm right. still at a salary that only increases by 5% every five years or whatever else? Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the biggest quintessential mistakes and uncertainty is to lean into this fear-driven, transactional, numbers-only message. And I do talk about in my, my white paper where we have to get away from numbers-only messaging. 
Don't leave your data naked. What does the numbers mean? Who cares? Why do you need to get to 15 million? Why does it matter? Why do you need to get to 25 billion? You, there's more context to that. And I think being able to leverage the origin story of the organization, the why you exist, what problem are you insatiably curious of solving? That has to be the central part of your narrative to help people feel like there's still a unifi- unifying point of why we're here, why we're trying to proceed forward. We don't know all the answers yet, and we're going to be curious and experimental and open-minded, but here is the centering point of why we are here. And I think every organization who's been able to adapt to this pandemic has been able to say, you know what? We can still deliver on our original mission, but we're just going to do it differently, different tools, different approaches, but our mission is still clear and it's still there. So I guess my follow-up is, do you have any examples of organizations who've done this well? Have you seen anyone doing that narrative storytelling, inspiring a team despite massive uncertainty effectively? Because I'm I'm looking for those examples all the time as a leader and as someone who, who's coaching other leaders in how to courageously share vision. You know, it's funny because I think the ones who have done it well are sort of the not household names. <laughs> like, yeah that essentially are small and focused on impact and attention. And not to say that large organizations can't do that. I think that there's been some really interesting changes with Apple, for instance. I do think they've made some commitments externally and internally that they're putting their money where their mouth is in terms of changing practice, changing um, innovation. I recently did an interview actually with their vice president of, I think it's called environmental and social policy. I might be butchering her title, her name is Lisa P. Jackson. She used to be the administrator for the EPA under Obama. And she took this position at Apple. And the narrative that they're shaping now is tech companies have a duty and a mission to leverage their power, their access, and their capital to course correct systemic issues that they benefited from. I think most organizations realize that exploitive labor and a lot of our practices from the past have influenced how money and wealth is continuing to be built. And so Apple is making this $100 million commitment. And I think a lot of their narrative around that has been, how do we not just donate a little bit here, donate a little bit there, but actually leverage our tools, our people, and our money to shift thinking for the better, to shift outcomes for the better, to affect communities that have been left behind. And I think it has been really unifying. I mean, I've literally heard people after, you know, these narratives are announced saying that they're keeping their Apple stock and they're you know, really thinking about Apple differently. And I think organizations that put their money where their mouth is, um, that are big and large, these are the large organizations that have the resources to do that. Another example, Ben and Jerry's is a great example. Ben and Jerry's, they stand for something. They are unapologetic about it. They are very clear with who they are and their values, both internally and externally. And people love them for it. I mean, obviously they're crazy diehard fans of Ben and Jerry's, but I think (laughs) They've done so well as an ice cream company of all things. Right? Such a vocal stance on the environment, on social issues, on their production practices, on how their employees are treated. And so there there are elements and aspects that you can see out in the wild. And I think 2020 has been sort of a a very clearly defining factor of our company's land in terms of their their genuineness. Because I think every company does a great job of performatively using to say things that they don't actually do in practice. So I think closing the gap between, you know, leveraging narrative to inspire and motivate people and actually meeting it with action is incredibly important or people won't believe you. And so a lot of companies have cried wolf, right? So they're kind of rebuilding their reputations. But 
I would say, you know, Apple, Ben and Jerry's are two recent ones I can think of. And there are so many smaller organizations that I've seen and have worked with. There's one, I'm forgetting his name, but he's all over LinkedIn. Um, I think his name is Dan Price. He's a CEO of his com- what company it is, but he essentially completely cut his salary to give a baseline play of every single staff member of 100K. And he's been talking about really interesting things that are, that are that are practices that have been proposed for a long time. These aren't like groundbreaking ideas. It's just he had the, the guts to be like, I'm just going to do things differently. And it's been documented all over LinkedIn and in the news. But he's a prime example of somebody putting their money where their mouth is, thinking about unconventional practices of business and how those actually matter, that growing big by the most exploitive, cheap practices possible is not sustainable. Like, yes, you might get people at the top rich long-term, but your company will probably implode eventually as we're seeing. So I would say those are the ones that like immediately top of mind have kind of showcase people who are able to leverage narrative and storytelling to motivate and inspire people, but then meeting Mm -hmm. it with some sort of action. Yeah, I think you're right about 2020 also inspiring a lot of proclamations on racial justice from a lot of people, like everybody, it seems like no one could stay silent. Uh, Thanks to the success of the Black Lives Matter movement last year and capturing the world's attention, uh, you know, again, these are not new issues, but I think the amount of attention and forced uh, holding a, you know, organizations accountable for self-evaluation and improvement was a big, a big hot topic last year. And I just did a podcast um, here on Bust Up saying, let's make sure to hold ourselves accountable. Here's how our plan is going. But also, remember all those plans that all those businesses came out with last summer? How are they doing? <laughs> Who's going to follow up? Who's going to read those cliff notes, you know? It's true. And that's one thing I've actually been asked a lot at different, you know, talks and conferences I've been part of. Almost every audience I've talked to, they're like, so what happens if someone, you know, uses narrative and then nothing happens? So they they say something and then there's no action. I'm like, that's the worst thing any leader can do. Yeah. Believe that they can manipulate through narrative. They exist. We've seen them, right? As soon as you don't follow through with actual tangible results, then you lose trust. And a quintessential part of the conversation in narrative intelligence is understanding the psychology of how people think. So they will believe you if they see some level of result or impact from the thing that you are sharing and saying to them. Um, but over time, if you you know say one thing and you eventually never follow through with it, then people know that you're you know full of crap essentially. <laughs> Like, you know, I don't believe any things you're saying. And that's a really challenging place to be because once you're in a place of being untrusted, it's a lot of effort to gain trust back. And I think that's another thing that we're rebuilding. We we have basement level, below basement level trust in our communities and societies right now. In our organizations, people are extremely um, tired and drained and feel taken advantage of. And a lot of that is very valid. And I a lot of leaders have a, an immense challenge that they need to take on for themselves in terms of being authentic and genuine and really valuing things that are around the quote unquote soft skills that our society doesn't care about, which is connection, belonging, genuinely listening and understanding other people and being able to rally people to inspire them and to see sort of like there's this term, a friend of mine who's, um, in the innovation space, she talks about symphony 
And she's like, I think we should stop talking about inclusion and actually talk about symphony, which is the idea of everyone's unique talents and strengths blending together into this beautiful sort of song, beautiful sort of construction so that people can see that uniqueness is a gift and that we can all contribute something. And I think if more leaders can see being able to look at everyone's unique talents and strengths, seeing them fully, understanding their life stories, their career stories, their journeys, and aligning them all to a shared goal. That's what a leader's primary job should be, is inspiring people to their fullest potential and aligning everyone to a shared goal that you all feel excited about. And we have opportunity to do that in a space where things are breaking down. We can actually rebuild. That is the one silver lining of this time. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's so interesting. I'm seeing so many intersections with gender here because not only do I work with women leaders through our leadership accelerator level up, but I also work with women who want to become more compelling, concise, cogent communicators through a program we have speak up. And the research shows that women leaders tend to be really good at those empathy, trust building, authenticity, integrity, soft skills. But the one area that women leaders struggle for a variety of reasons um, is in vision, like sharing and communicating and constructing a compelling vision. And some women say, well, I don't want to be Steve Jobs. I don't need to be Richard Branson. I'm not like into being the thought leader guy in the spotlight. But we have so much public narrative around those big idea guys. We don't have a lot of examples of the big idea women who instead, a lot of the women leaders who come into our programs, they're like, give us give us a project, it's done tomorrow. Like, you mm-hmm. need someone to manage making things happen, I can get it done. But as it comes to compelling people to take action through storytelling, that is such a key leadership characteristic. Sharing a compelling vision is such a key leadership characteristic. And yet I see women struggle on that front. And you know, you're reminding us of the critical importance of narrative leadership. I wonder if you've seen changes on in terms of gender when it comes to how women and folks across the gender spectrum approach this topic. That's such a great question. And I think it points to a couple of things around how we perceive leadership to begin with. Right. Because there are a lot of women with incredible vision that people don't listen to. I mean, mm-hmm. they have really insightful, impactful, future forward messages, and they are not allowed on stages. They aren't paid properly. And so their messages kind of get lost. And I think mm-hmm. we, we over celebrate and congratulate pretty mediocre and average <laughs> for men. But yeah. honestly, I think a lot of the messages aren't that innovative. I think there's a lot of innovation that's, you know, colonization and exploitation that's not actually that creative or that different and so I would I would actually there's two things about it like yes women are taught to have a lot more self-doubt and to be a lot more self-censoring so there's that barrier and then the other barrier is our perception of what vision even is is skewed through bias there's sort of these two things working in tandem and I think the best thing that women can do is to build community and voice outside of conventional spaces and to not worry about gatekeepers. Because typically once you build enough momentum with other like-minded people who do want to listen to you, then you tip the needle. And again, I want to keep beating the devil. But Stacey Abrams is a great example of that. No one wants to listen to her. She had been literally, she started this organizing movement 10 years ago. At least 10. 
And she's been talking about all this stuff for a long time. But when she would try to get onto certain stages or share her message, people, you know, thought she was loony. What are you doing? You're up upstarting the system. They saw her as public enemy number one because she wanted to sh- shift the status quo in ways that made people in power uncomfortable. So she decided to talk to the people who would listen and who do matter the most because they took the actions to support the message. So I think what women need to do more of is not worry too much about being in conventional spaces and being heard, but building their own and building collective collective movement and support. Because as we've seen even, even in 2020, the collective momentum of just a few thousand people can be critically impactfully changing about something. I mean, we've literally seen that play out live, even with the coup that we just experienced in the United States. That was just a few thousand people who physically were there. So we don't, you don't need a lot of people to be able to have a message. And I think with vision, mm. being able to say, say things that can make people uncomfortable to standing your truth and power is a big aspect of vision. And a lot of women are taught that that's bad. That like right. telling, telling certain truths that make people uncomfortable, like in other people's comfort is the priority. I think that right. is taught to women. Yes. So if you kind of deprogram and decondition the idea of comfort is of the utmost importance, but truth and accountability and people fully being seen is of the utmost importance, so genuine authenticity, then you can tell a message that's real and not be so f- afraid of how people will respond to you. And I think mm. an example even for my own life is so I do storytelling performances and one of the first ones that I did was around growing up in Utah which was a very specific experience as like a black woman who's not Mormon not Republican um and essentially was my family's from the south and they're part of the great migration so they moved to Utah in like the 60s and at first when I was sort of you know producing this show Mm -hmm. I had a lot of fears about telling the truth about some of my experiences because I thought I would get a lot of hate mail and people, you know, backlashing and being angry about it. But then I had this conviction of, I think people need to hear the story because of the potential impact. So that matters more. Right. When I shifted my narrative, I was able to put on this one woman show, this hour long show. um, That was one of the most challenging things I've ever done, but also one of the most fulfilling. And I got so much positive feedback from that experience. And I was really grateful that I was able to find conviction in the impact of what I was trying to do focusing so much on the potential backlash because you will always get naysayers you will always get people who have a vested interest in people being quiet and silent but as audrey lord said in the past that silence won't save you you know being quiet doesn't stop adversity it doesn't stop people doing bad things to you or to people that you love so speaking up is one of the best things that you can do i love it that's the perfect note to end on christina Thank you so much. Ooh, I'm cracking over here. Thank you so much for your time and your your storytelling here on the podcast. Where can our listeners learn more about your great work? They can go to thenewquo.com. That's T-H-E-N-E-W-Q-U-O.com. That's where you can look at the white paper, check out my work. You know, I work with companies and startups on building inclusive culture and habits. So Always happy to talk more about that. And you can follow me on Instagram at Christina Blacken or Twitter at C Blacken. Although I'm not as active on Twitter, I'll admit. I'd, I'd be on there every once in a while, but you can see me here and there if you are on Twitter. Awesome. I love it. And you have a podcast of your own. What is it called? It's called Sway Them in Color. So it's W A Y, Them in Color. And it's about unconventional leadership. So I talked awesome. a lot about this with 
um, leaders of color who are in all types of spaces. I've talked to sex educators, a shaman. I've talked to people who have been through really incredible and interesting things and their perspective of what does it mean to be a leader and to shake up the status quo. And so it's really awesome to be able to have that kind of podcast and make a space for people to talk about leadership in a new way. Awesome. Well, Christina Blacken, thank you for the work you're doing. Keep it coming. And I know that our listeners here would love to continue learning from you. So thanks again. Thank you. To learn more about everything we discussed in today's episode, head to bossedup.org slash episode 306. That's bossedup.org slash episode 306. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. This week, I want to give a shout out to Liz, who recently graduated from Speak Up, one of our new programs here at Bossed Up. It's an eight-week public speaking program for women who want to communicate with more confidence in more concise and compelling and really cogent ways. We're actually launching our next Speak Up cohort at the top of the month in March. So if you are interested in learning more, head to bossedup.org slash speakup. Here's what she had to say, quote, I'm going to pretend that we're still in the 13th month of 2020 and share that by far the best professional development decision I made in 2020 was taking part in Bossed Up's Speak Up program. I can't overstate how stressed out I used to get about public speaking. I would fully black out giving presentations. Emily's eight-week cohort got at the root causes of the anxiety for so many of us, especially women, that we feel when speaking up, provided tactics for addressing this anxiety head-on, and taught me practical tips for making my voice heard in meetings and crafting powerful presentations. Not an ad, just a ringing endorsement if you're looking to spend some professional development funds in 2020. Liz, first of all, thank you for the shout-out and for the praise. And second of all, congratulations on the incredible progress that you've made as a public speaker. I've seen it firsthand myself because at the end of Speak Up, we have a, uh, what do we call it? It's like a symposium, a finale week sort of um, speaker series where everybody in the program presents one compelling brief talk about an issue that they care strongly about. And Liz did such a great job. I would have been amazed to know how anxious she was about public speaking prior uh, prior to working together and speak up. So kudos, Liz. Way to make your voice heard. And thank you for making your voice heard in this meta way by giving us a shout out too. Thanks for for helping spread the word about speak up. What a meta meta example of speaking up. All right. If you want to learn more, uh, like I said, about any of the resources Christina Blacken and I shared on today's podcast, head to bossedup.org slash episode 306. And I really want to hear from you. Tag me on social media at Emily Aries or at bossedup.org to tell me what you're taking away from our conversation today. How can you begin to strengthen your narrative leadership skills? How can we begin to question the stories that we've been told and rewrite new ones uh, for the modern era? How can we as women strengthening strengthen our visioning skills and communicate them with confidence and without apology in a world that frankly isn't always welcoming and listening. Uh, I'd love to hear from you as we continue the conversation after the podcast in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook or on social media writ large. Uh, Until next time, y'all, thank you for listening, for sharing, for rating the podcast in Apple Podcasts, for 
reviewing, for uh, you know, spreading the word. If this is an episode that really hit home for you, I'd love for you to share it with the folks who you think could use it. And in the meantime, let's keep Boston in pursuit of our purpose and together. Uh, as the 19, 1896 motto uh, from America's first black women's club says, let's keep lifting as we climb. Mm-hmm.